You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Your host for this episode is Sally Greenberg, Executive Director at the National Consumers League. Welcome back to part two of this fascinating conversation between Judy Lickman. Challenging GE's policy, their health and disability policy, which covered everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. It covered vasectomies. It covered circumcisions. It covered injuries you received from felonies you committed. There was only one thing it didn't cover. And Marsha Greenberger? So we actually filed the first brief before either GE or the union did to set out why pregnancy is a condition that can be disabling and should fit into the model of what they were covering. Now, fast forward, the Supreme Court decided, written by Justice, was he Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time? Justice, Justice Rehnquist decided that. That it wasn't, that GE's plan was in no way sex discriminatory and therefore not a violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act because you weren't comparing men and women, you were comparing pregnant and non-pregnant people. And I always, when I talk about it, it's just particularly Rehnquistian to think that that is what you were comparing. And indeed, um, what We did maybe just days, certainly not a week after that decision that came down on December 7th, 1976, a true day of infamy, um, was uh, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was still teaching and was the head of the um, Women's Rights Center at the ACLU, called a meeting of all of us women's rights lawyers to talk about, okay, what are we going to do and what's the plan to go to Congress and overturn this really horrific Supreme Court decision. Ruth, I think without speaking for her, brought to that table the vast expertise and sophisticated knowledge about litigating sex discrimination cases. I don't think at that very moment she would have fashioned herself a lobbyist experienced in uh, getting legislation passed. But we had by then, only a few years into our jobs, and I came with some experience, had a fair amount of experience working on legislation. There was no doubt that we needed a statute to overturn this horrific um, Gilbert day of infamy decision. So uh, very quickly, that coalition divided itself into a steering committee, which Ruth chaired, and a number of operational implementing committees. One was a legislative drafting committee, which Marsha and I both 
co-chaired. Uh, another was a public affairs, public education communications committee. Uh, there was a research committee, and I'm probably leaving something out. And so, but you two masterminded the legislative strategy. We did with a lot of help from a lot of very, very smart people. We and did. Clearly, we worked very closely with people on the Hill as well, and the staff on the Hill. Senator Kennedy, as I recall, was yes. a was a was a champion. He yes, was absolutely, and he uh, throughout his tenure in the Senate had superb staff, and so we would be consulting with them. And so, and the unions had wonderful, wonderful staff that uh, they lent to us. So the AFL General Counsel's Office had a wonderful woman named Marsha Burzon, who worked very closely with us, who is now a important judge on the Ninth Circuit and has been that for more than 20 years, probably. And so it was a, a, a healthy amalgam of great brands, mostly women, but not only women. And to go back to your question about the war, it seems so outrageous to say that pregnancy discrimination isn't sex discrimination. That is how it struck people in the public and on the Hill. That pregnant, if you're discriminating against somebody because they're pregnant, that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that they're a woman. And so there was the immediate outcry that this isn't right and this isn't fair. And the facts of the General Electric case that came out worked to our advantage because, in fairness, GE at the time had one of the most generous fringe benefit plans and disability plans and that the industry had. So their very generosity worked against them because it was arbitrary just to leave out this one gaping hole that of the pregnancy-related conditions. So working on pregnancy discrimination became a very early priority of ours, absent a big strategic plan that said, oops, I'm going to work on pregnancy discrimination. Uh, the other major issue that uh, I worked on from the very beginning was uh, the enforcement of Title IX. Now, Title IX was passed in 1972, as we uh, all just discussed a few minutes ago. But when I came in 74, it still had no enabling regulations. And without getting more wonky than any audience has a right to expect of us, uh, without regulations, without explaining what the government means and intends in terms of implementing a law that Congress passes, the law is virtually useless. The law is not worth that paper on a, on a, on a wall without implementing regulations. So here we were, I came in the summer of 74 without any regulations. Um, Marsha was already at uh, the Women's Rights Project, and... Did you two know each other at the time? We were... When did you? Do, I'll let Marsha tell that story. Tell that story because you, you were in you were in parallel organizations, and we want right. to get to your your um, okay. decisions to stay in parallel okay. organizations. Well, I had started a year plus before, and one of the other areas that was an area of focus that I decided on was education because that, of course, was central, also as well as employment. The third, by the way, was women's health. 
And um, Title IX had just passed, and so here was an opportunity to work in a very important area and a brand new law. So as Judy said, the law just said you can't discriminate on the basis of sex in education programs or activities that receive federal funds. It was modeled after Title VI of the 64 Civil Rights Act. And the 64 Civil Rights Act prohibited race and national origin discrimination, not sex discrimination. So Title IX added that sex discrimination prohibition for education. Only. For education only. In 1972. A number of women's groups had come to me and said that they were concerned because when Title VI was passed, the implementing regulations were issued within six months of the time that the law was passed. The time was going, 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 no regulations. And the government said, and it was HEW at the time, Health, Education, and Welfare. So it was a Nixonian uh, HEW? Yes. Dragging its feet. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then a Ford administration dragging its feet. And so the question of, well, it's six months for Title VI, and the months are going by, then more time is going by, and the administration said that as a basically as a matter of fairness to the covered colleges and universities and all the public schools around the country that were covered by Title IX, they would wait to enforce the law until they had these implementing regulations to give the schools an idea of what it really meant. Does it mean that you have to get rid of single-sex dorms, which were very common at the time? Does it mean you can't have scholarships, some for men and some for women, which were very common at the time? Does it mean that in sports, you can't have men's teams and women's teams? Important questions. Does it mean that home ec and shop could be girls only and boys only, which they used to be in many schools? So these some of the answers were, you can't have just all girls or all boys like home ec and shop. And other answers were, yes, you can have um, single-sex dorms for an ex- as an example on that basis. In any event, the women's groups were concerned that there weren't these implementing regulations, and they came to us at the Women's Rights Project to bring a lawsuit that was modeled after a lawsuit that had been brought because during the same period, a few years before, Title VI had been used to, as the weapon to desegregate the schools in the South. And when Nixon came in, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was in the White House And he said, it's time for some benign neglect. It's time to just stop enforcing Title VI and let things calm down for a while. So there was this official statement that that was going to be the end of Title VI enforcement for some undisclosed period of time. So the NAACP Legal Defense Fund put together wanted to bring a lawsuit, and they went to premier civil rights litigators uh, to bring the lawsuit with them, and the chief lawyer was a lawyer named Elliot Lichtman. He happened, although I didn't (laughs) focus on it at the time, to be the, the husband of Judy Lichtman. 
So the first Lichtman that I met was Elliot Lichtman giving me advice on how to structure and bring the lawsuit that would challenge the failure to enforce Title IX. Because his case, as it went through the courts, won this landmark victory. It didn't go up to the Supreme Court, but it went all the way through all the judges on Mm -hmm. the D.C. Circuit that held that while the government has a lot of discretion to decide how to enforce, it doesn't have discretion to simply say, I'm not enforcing, I'm ignoring a law altogether. So you sued the government? So we sued the government. And, and so when did you I when did knew, you meet when did you meet the the, the wife of Elliot Lichtman? So I knew about this Lichtman. When did clan. you file the lawsuit? We filed the lawsuit in 1974, but in the meantime, the head of the Center for Law and Social Policy was a very good friend of the Lichtmans and knew that Judy Lichtman, his dear friend, was coming to be the first executive director of the Women's Legal Defense Fund. So he said he would arrange a lunch for the two of us to meet. I, of course- At the Taj Mahal Indian restaurant Mm -hmm. on Connecticut Avenue. Connecticut (laughs) Avenue, okay. (laughs) I think it still exists. So we met, and as you can- I think it's the Bombay Club now. (laughs) (laughs) It was not an elegant restaurant by any means, uh -uh. but it was very good, and we had a great lunch. I remember it. And this was 1974? It was the fall of 74. Uh I had heard of Marsha through Elliot, but we hadn't met before. So we were fully aware of the- I, of course, knew about the Women's Legal Defense Fund, and I- knew that Judy was coming, but we hadn't actually met. And so Joannick was the action-forcing event that said, I'm going to set this lunch up, and the two of us met. Now, I'm going to uh, take the liberty of asking you, since you worked both in, in legal organizations, and I'm sure you've been asked this before, but now I've got the two of you here, legal organizations that both litigated and pushed mm-hmm. for legislation, was there a competitive uh, feeling between the two organizations, uh, your boards of directors, you yourselves, you've remained friends. And I said, I know this because I see you having lunch together on weekends. So I, that's a sure sign of friendship. <laughs> but you were doing prob- probably many similar uh, kinds of work, working on the same issues. And if the answer is no, then did you ever think about joining forces? And I'm sure that had been suggested to you in the past. Because people say to me, Sally, you run a consumer organization. Why don't you merge (laughs) with the Consumer Federation of America or or some other organization? They don't understand why why we we are, you know, they, they think of us as competitors. And I don't think of us that way. Can you speak to that issue? Yes, we are competitors. And... Yes, we have been asked about merging. I have zero humility about what an extraordinary business model the two organizations and the two of us with very strong partners in our respective organizations with Marsha Duffy Campbell as her co-president and with me, first my deputy and then my longtime successor, Deborah Ness, in leading two organizations that manage the competition, be as transparent as possible, and at the same time acknowledge and 
thrive on the collegiality between the two organizations, not just its leaders, although I'm proud of the leadership we provided from the very top, to our respective uh, quite large staffs today. I don't think men could have pulled this off. I really don't. I think it's a women's thing. And I think we are both two thriving, healthy, important organizations in a broad civil rights infrastructure for it. And I think the answer to the merger question really is there is more than enough work for both of us. Both organizations are very trusting and reliant on the good work of the other. So that if the National Women's Law Center is taking the lead on X, whatever X is, it would make no sense for us to take the lead and vice versa. That doesn't mean we wouldn't be very good colleagues and helpers on X. We would. But there's so much work to do on any given issue. The regulation, the early regulation, the fight to get strong regulations on Title IX is a monument. I, I think if I went back and honestly looked at the papers in our in, that are now being warehoused, I would find drafts upon drafts upon drafts of our respective comments on getting the regulations right. And they were voluminous, and they were all the subjects Marsha laid out and probably 10 more that she didn't have time to talk about. So there was so much work to do, and we both really thought of the other with so much respect and therefore could defer to the expertise of others that um, we needed each other and and relied upon each other. And at some point, more toward the 90s, to jump forward from the 70s to the 90s appropriately, we we diverged in, in some subject matters in some very healthy institutional and organizational ways. But that just strengthened the need to have both of us be two strong institutions rather than argue for the merger of the two. So another argument that would be uh, thrown your way, I'm sure, is there is not an endless supply of money and funding. You're, you're, you're uh, both asking very similar companies and foundations for funds, and you've got a big budget now. The, the, we certainly know the partnership has a big budget, as does the, the center. And why would you compete for these uh, very scarce funds? This, is, this discussion that we're having is not just for us. It's for people who are doing uh, the work of public interest lawyers who are working for nonprofit organizations, and we hear that a lot. The, you know, you're competing for the same funds. And so why would you um, sort of divide and conquer as opposed to come together? Well, let me say two things. First of all, sometimes it does make sense to merge. And so there isn't an automatic answer that would apply everywhere. But in our instance, I think we felt very strongly um, that there were several reasons that led us to resist merging. First of all, that having two organizations in the room reinforcing each other can make us better advocates and more powerful than if there's only one. And that often played itself out. Number two, we would sometimes find that 
a particular individual or or, or foundation or corporation or whatever the sort the donor may be wouldn't give more than a certain amount in a grant or a contribution. And with the both of us getting that amount, we ended up with double the resources. Now, of course, sometimes we didn't, but often we felt that we were getting double the resources. And that the opposite would be true as well, that had we merged, that merged one would not have gotten double the resources. They would have been diminished by 50%. We were quite confident about that. And thirdly, we felt, and here was some of the friendly competition, that sometimes we would see one of the organizations finding a source of funding that the other didn't have, and that would be a good idea, and we would go make our case, and sometimes the second organization could make the case, you should fund us too, and sometimes we couldn't. So our funding wasn't always entirely identical, and so we were able to expand the pie by being two separate organizations, by being able to appeal sometimes to different sources of funds. And also, Judy had said something that I want to emphasize, because we did have such a good, and do have such a good relationship, that sometimes we didn't work on the same issues or did in very much of a supportive way, whereas the other organization would take the lead. And if we were working on the same issue, we would be very intentional about how we would divide up the work. So if on, usually, for example, if there was a brief, one of the organizations would be the lead lawyers, but sometimes we both might be. But then we would divide up the issues that each would be responsible for. So there was such close coordination that that also helped us feel confident that we had a good case to be made. And I think that because we had a good track record in not being so duplicative, that funders who would check out it, does this spiel that we're giving make any sense? Are they telling us the truth? I think that those funders, when they got checked out the answers, did get reinforcement for, by the case the, that we were making. Sorry. You know, I think rare the, the counter to the beginning assertion of what you set out, Sally, is what you hear, is that rarely is funding a zero-sum game. And even the most institutional and bureaucratic of institutional donors always have a discretionary pot. There's always some money someplace for somebody to use when the issue and that's is what important. Makes you both such successful well, fundraisers for the, your organizations. I mean, it's true. We're both very entrepreneurial. It turns out that we're entrepreneurial in the not-for-profit world as distinct from the for-profit world, but I don't think you're successful nonprofit executives unless you're very entrepreneurial people. And I think both our organizations are, reflect that kind of leadership even t- into today. And because our work was mutually supportive and the overlaps were limited and, and there was a good reason for the overlaps that we could justify, we were able to make a compelling case about why both organizations were stronger being separate than being together. I, I remember one very funny incident where 
Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is now our uh, non-voting delegate from D.C., and Marsha Greenberger and I all testified in the early 80s in a Republican-controlled Senate with a chair, Orrin Hatch, on sexual harassment, to take a timely topic. And at the end of the um, testimony, he congratulated us in a very uh, sort of phony, gallant way about what a great job we had all done. And then he said, and just think that you didn't repeat yourselves. And we just sort of laughed out loud. Of course, we didn't repeat each other. There was so much to say, we divided up what needed to be said. There was no question that we weren't going to repeat ourselves. It was like, like, what planet are you from? <laughs> Classic or <an> hatch. <laughs> when the Women's Legal Defense Fund began as an all-volunteer organization, it had that a local service component to Definitely. it. Definitely. It was handling individual people's cases on name changes, Judy described, and it was taking or on employment discrimination, but an individual person. It was it was responding to individual people's needs as they called in for legal help, and of course, big precedent-setting cases could arise from an individual person's case, and it did, which I'm sure Judy will get to and describe at some point. But that was a very important beginning focus of the Women's Legal Defense Fund. The Center for Law and Social Policy was thinking on more in a national, federal focus. And it was bringing cases that we anticipated would go on for years. We were representing often organizations, not necessarily individuals or individuals with organizations. And we were there to make law. Our litigation was in the service of establishing legal principles to enforce the law, et cetera. So we and had attack some, systemic wrongs. Right. For on broad, as Judy said, affecting system-wide problems and system-wide issues. So we both ended up focusing on this pregnancy discrimination issue as an example of how the two things overlap. It's never so neat and clean, but in the earliest years, there was a natural focus that both allowed for cooperation but also difference in, in emphasis. And so both of our organizations grew, and Judy talked about Brooksley Bourne giving that speech and raising the funding for her and to get the office started. She also was one of the key people who was suggested to me when I first started to talk to about women's legal rights, and she and another woman, Marna Tucker, were teaching some of the first women in the law classes. What year was this? In 1972 and 1973 when I was just starting. And she had given that famous speech, and she was teaching women in the law classes in the law schools in the Washington area. So, from a I, curriculum they developed, there was no case book about. Right, there was no jurisprudence at that point. <laughs> right. right, right, virtually uh, none. Mm -hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had won her very first case, Reed v. Reed, Reed, in 1971. But there were hardly any statutes and yet. And Roe v. Wade was January 1973. So that gives you a sense. 18 months before I was hired, 
and virtually at the time that Marsha was hired. Just a few months after Just a, I was hired. So, mm-hmm. And Reed v. Reed was men were preferred as executors of estates by law in the Idaho uh, yes. state, uh, yes. uh, the on, state on the books. Yes, exactly. The state law had categories of relatives, so it would have parents. And the father was automatically preferred over the mother, regardless of whether the father was in any way, shape, or form suitable to serve as an executor of an estate. Brothers were in a different, ca- you know, siblings. The brothers automatically preferred over the sisters, regardless of whether the brothers had ever known the person who died, etc. And so it was very arbitrary, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg brought that case to the Supreme Court. And at the time, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution had been used to strike down unconstitutional race discrimination. And states had to show a very, a very compelling interest of the state to justify any automatic race-based difference. As a practical matter, states could never meet that compelling state interest. Otherwise, it was something called rational basis. If the state could come up with any rational reason whatsoever, including a post hoc reason, something they made up after the fact that sounded reasonable, the courts would defer and say, that's okay. You can prefer um, redheaded people over blonde. That's fine. So that was the state of the law until Ruth Bader Ginsburg began her extraordinary career litigating sex discrimination protections under the Constitution. And with Reed v. Reed, she had a situation where there was an estranged family and the father was automatically preferred over the mother when the son died and was a very inappropriate executor of the estate. And so she brought this case, and the facts were very compelling about why the mother should have been the right one to have been selected, and the court agreed. So then everybody says, wait a minute. Does this mean sex discrimination is no longer the rational basis low tier? Is it compelling? What is it? And at that very first case, it was basically the first case where the Supreme Court had ever struck down a state statute as unconstitutional sex discrimination, but it didn't spell out in that early case what the standard would be. Eventually, it evolved and became what's called a middle-tier standard. So it wasn't a compelling state interest, but an important state interest. So sometimes the states could meet the standard, and sometimes they couldn't. And that is pretty much, in. it's been refined and fine-tuned and developed over the years in important cases, some that Ruth Bader Ginsburg brought and others that she decided as a Supreme Court justice. And so now race is strict scrutiny of what a state does. With sex, it's skeptical scrutiny. Um, I'm going to uh, throw another question or two at you. Uh, I'm going to ask another question. You talked in your C-SPAN 
for, for this is this is for um, this generation. You talked in the, your C-SPAN interview, Marsha, about coming home in the afternoon and hearing uh, Senator Joe McCarthy's mm-hmm. hearings, the the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee. It was a very very dark period in American history. People, many people, were sent to jail, lost their jobs, blacklisted. We are in a dark period in American history uh, for progressives as well with the current administration. What advice do you have for young progressives who are trying to survive uh, the Trump era? We've also lived through the Nixon era, lived through the several Bush era, Reagan era. In fact, it seems like most of the eras that we have lived in. And yet, all the, all the strides, we're not there yet, the strides that have been made in spite of those setbacks. How, what advice would you give? So, um, I think that's a very good question and a hard question. I think a couple of things. Um, I, I too remember the McCarthy hearings, but I remember watching it in public elementary school. I'm that much older than Marsha. Two things that feel a little bit contradictory or internally inconsistent, but are both true. One, I think these dark hours are what we lawyers call sui generis. They're like no other. And at the same time, I think there is enormous cause for celebration about the strength of democracy at what now feels like a very, very fragile time for democracy. I take that march after the day after Trump's inaugural and the outpouring of women and the good men in our lives and the 40,000 people who, women who wanted to run for public office and the extraordinary taking back, if you will, of progressives of the House of Representatives by women candidates. I take the Me Too movement and the ability of the strength and the courage of individual women to say, never again, no more. Uh, people taking on the horrific con- conditions on the southern, bo- on our southwest border, saying, never again. Um, so I see the awful fear around the fragility of democracy also being a time of creating great strength and advocacy on behalf of women advocates all across the board. And I think I've just touched the surface. And I'm just going to add to that because I agree that there have been times of total despair and a feeling that the system failed. I'm not sure that any of them were as extreme as what we're feeling now. But certainly the Clarence Thomas and Anita mm-hmm. Hill hearings were a period mm-hmm. when we felt as if right. Congress and the system completely failed us and just felt devastated that fairness simply did not prevail. And people who seemed to have been allies there were, were not there to be relied upon it when push came to shove. Um, but I also think that there we've spent many 
years at these dark hours looking for the ways to fight back, and we have always found ways to fight back. Just as Judy said, the enormity of the problems now, we've seen these enormous precedent-setting marches and women running for office and women of diverse backgrounds getting elected to office. And we just saw with women's soccer the Good incredible right. victory that the whole country was celebrating and the, the hero that is so strong of, on our women's team, which is filled with heroes, of course, but here she is so proud of her strength, of her politics, that she's a lesbian. These are things that she is out front about and, and strong about. And at the same time, after the win, the whole crowd, you know, yells equal pay. Nike, a commercial enterprise, runs this powerful commercial on women winning. And one of the issues going back to our early Title IX days uh, that was one of the most devastating fights that kept those regulations from getting promulgated was the controversy over women playing sports and so many people who were opposed to the very notion of women playing sports. So seeing where we have come, despite all of the setbacks, I think gives hope that there are enough of the reservoirs of our system and our population and our sense of right and wrong, that there will be ways for people to fight and ultimately prevail. Amen. We're going to wrap up, but I do need to ask one final question so that we can close this um, uh, discussion uh, in, in, in a positive way. We already have. You've given both incredibly positive messages about the resilience and strength of our democracy and the, the mechanisms of democracy that continue to protect our, our, our soccer players, even though the president of the United States and many people have said that she shouldn't be allowed to play. She's probably got far more support than not. Uh, the leadership skills that you've developed over time, this is, again, for our, our, our younger generation. Um, what do you have, advice do you have in, for men and women coming up through the ranks about um, working on progressive issues and not getting too discouraged? You've already, already talked about democracy. Uh, what do you, and, and finally, what do you look for in young lawyers and professionals who want to do this kind of public interest work? Well, I'll start by saying... I look for somebody who views it as a privilege to be able to work on these issues at this time. After the election, people were in tears in my office, and we talked about what a privilege it was not to have to be depressed and feeling powerless, but rather to be in a position where you could be taking those entrepreneurial skills and talents and figure out how you were going to fight back and how you're going to make a difference. That's the first thing. The second thing is to think about how wherever you are, it does not have to be full-time, but there can be lots of different ways of making a difference. And life can be you know, filled with twists and turns and different, different careers where sometimes you might be doing it in an all-out full-time way. Sometimes it may be in a volunteer way. Sometimes it may be in a part-time way, but um, and that your own personal circumstances may change from year to year. 
but there'll always be some way of staying involved, and that can be a very empowering, uplifting thing and way to feel. And in terms of leadership skills, I think that there are some people who are born leaders, and there are some people who develop leadership skills partially from watching and modeling themselves after others, partially perhaps through mentorship programs. I would say for young people, one of the most important things in early jobs is to look at who you're going to be working for and working with and make sure that those are people who you can respect. And that is, in a certain sense, the best way of developing those leadership skills and a sense of accomplishment and satisfaction that sticks with you over the long haul. So I agree with everything Marcia said. I'm not going to repeat a word of it. But I'm going to add one thing that I know she'll agree with me about, and that is we all, including you, Sally, spend an enormous amount of time and our personal and professional capital mentoring mostly young women and some really good men. Um. And what I ask of them when they write me these profusely thankful notes, I say, don't thank me, but continue it and do it and come back and report to me what you did to mentor other people, because that is my thanks. If I have been successful and you are really thankful, just keep doing it. Two wonderful answers. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback, so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter at NCL underscore tweets. That's NCL underscore tweets. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org. That's N-C-L-N-E-T dot O-R-G to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this. Thank you.